After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. It's Raghu from Mind Rolling, another episode. Welcome, everybody. And I want to welcome my guest, who's written a couple of wonderful books, Barbara Bonner. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So uh, to say that uh, you are an author is is a true-ism, but uh, the reality is that... Um, you have done a lot of things in your life, right? So um, you're a Renaissance woman, uh, that's for sure. But before we even get into some of the things, uh, you know, my interest and in, in, in whenever I meet somebody that uh, I don't know and I don't know their story, the part of their story that uh, I always like to hear, I like to hear like when you were just coming up as a youth and growing into womanhood, what are the things... I know you have been involved uh, in the spiritual path for a long, long, long time. And uh, I always like to hear what are the things that triggered you to even understand that there was a path and what motivated you to get on the path with me. And I, you know, of course, the listeners know quite well. It was music, psychedelics, right, back in the day. So, uh, yeah, what, what were the triggers that brought you into not just your life, but life work as well? Well, it's, it's always so interesting to look back and, and uh, make sense of it all. Because, of course, while you're doing it, it doesn't really make that much sense. It's just putting one foot in front of the other. And then suddenly you look back and it's a wonderful pattern. Um, I guess my early life was very much about creativity and art and music and literature. Those were the things that really moved me. Um, I was lucky enough to spend every summer as a kid with my dad in Europe. And so learning foreign languages and learning about art just came naturally to me. I didn't know it was privileged or special. It just fascinated me. Uh, and then uh, I guess... After college, without really knowing why, I went with a Peace Corps buddy to India. This oh. was 1970. Uh, and I really, I hadn't, I can't say I was called to India or I wanted to go study with someone. I just knew I needed to get there. And, uh, and so I went and we had a 
summer of absolutely no money and traveling all around during monsoon summer. And it was as it was as if I'd gone to another planet. I just uh, there was something the door swung wide. That's really the only way I can describe it. Uh, and you know, traveling in India at that time was tough going. So it wasn't as if I was sitting around with great philosophical musings all the time. A lot of it is just simply enduring. Yeah, uh, right. Survival. But, Right, right. Nothing worse, fittest. nothing at that time, anything. But I adored it. Something deeply resonated in, and mm. into a very privileged, white, upper-class background that, that didn't have any of that in it. So there was something clearly that was uh, resonating in me that, I, that was mysterious to me as well. Um, but I knew that I was probably going to come back and lead a pretty respectable life, go to go to graduate school and um, have a career in museums, which I did, but get married. So I had a sense of, oh, you better do this while you can. <laughs> and uh, and then I uh, I went on and and had a career in, in museums in New York and and uh, working with philanthropy. But still, it was that original experience. It's as if I almost put it on save or on hold. Uh, where were you? Tell, tell me where you were. That's when I went. To, that's Ramdas went back Everybody to India. Everybody was there that summer. Yeah. They, <laughs> he went back to India the second time, uh, actually in the fall of 1970. And I went, uh, met up with him to try and get him, begged him to you know, let me know where Neem Karoli Baba was. Uh, and so we were all, that's the year we went. Where were you in, in, and, and in say, the Sharon summer, was fall? Joseph Sharon was, was there. there jo yeah. Jack, everybody was there then, but I didn't, I didn't know them, nor did I know I was looking for them. I just knew that something about this country, uh, we went everywhere. We did, the, we did in three months, just kept on the road, really staying with Peace Corps families. And um, so it wasn't a spiritual quest. It was really a, a journey through India, um, through very poor India. Uh, well, it can't help be, be a spiritual quest, absolutely. no matter what. Absolutely. It was, let's say, an unconscious spiritual yeah, quest right. that, that simply stayed with me forever mm. and a sense of I'm going to do something with this later when I can. Uh, I wish I'd had the courage then uh, to say, oh, this might be actually what I want to do. Um, but mm. at any rate... Uh, so I didn't get back to India until maybe ten years ago when I oh really when I did the I did the Buddhist pil pilgrimage path trip which yeah. was just and then I went with Bob Thurman to Bhutan um, and so those were my two times back mm. uh, wow. but that was kind of the turning point for me then I led a very respectable life and running <laughs> running museums and doing all that kind of stuff right. but uh, it was always there. Mm. <laughs> So uh, I want to get to the these books that uh, these two books, which are companion books, obviously, um, and one is on generosity and one is on courage. And I I think the first one you put together is on generosity. Yes. And um, we have an extreme lack of uh, in this uh, country right now generosity. Don't we ever? Paucity of that. Uh, but uh, talk about how how did this all come to you to put this together? And by the way, everybody out there, 
Um, it's these are beautiful books. They have tremendous amount of different quotations from a wide assortment of of people, uh, past and present. And uh, I love quotes myself. So you know, because you can just open the book and go to something, and then get uh, certainly it becomes an inspirational point for the rest of your day, which is a lot of what the, these books are about. But the other beauty of the books is these stories that you tell of different people and their experiences with the with the theme. Uh, so, yeah, I want to pull a couple of examples out of those because they're quite beautiful. Um, but, yeah, so how did, you, how did you get around to thinking that this, this would be something to do? Well, generosity and working with generous people had always been part of my life uh, uh, in, in philanthropy and philanthropic endeavors, both in New York and then when I moved up here to the Berkshires. Uh, and it always really fascinated me what made for a generous life. Uh, and I was interested in both qualities, generosity and courage, because I think that our, our culture really has a misconception about them both. Uh, I wanted to talk about generosity not as the giving and exchanging of material goods, but as a spiritual quality of heart opening and compassion, of people stepping forward in moments to do something extraordinary for other people. Uh, that's to me what generosity is. And so then, of course, the other, the other subject is inspiration. Uh, and what I wanted to offer is inspiration. So the quandary for me was, how do we do that? I don't want just a tome on generosity. That's going to put people to sleep. But uh, wonderful poetry on the subject of generosity, quotations that just can reach out and grab you in mm. a second, and then stories of people's lives who've been transformed. That's so, so it was kind of, you know, there's a tradition called the commonplace book, which started in the 17th century of books of people just putting together all kinds of random bits of information on a certain subject. I didn't know, of course, that that's what I was doing, but I've been told I was creating a commonplace book. <laughs> uh, so it's an offering. It's really an I offering. I've never heard of that myself. That's wild. No, I hadn't until recently. Um, mm. But it was meant to be um, an, in, an offering of inspirations that people could either sit down and read the whole thing or read 10 pages at a time or keep it on their bedside tables. Many people have it on their desks. Uh, mm. and, and I think it offered a different view of generosity from our very, very materialistic culture. Well, one of the things you said uh, about these books, or in particular generosity, a pr uh, more of seeing it as a practice, not just giving of goods or giving things mm -hmm. to other people, uh, me, I'm giving you something, um, mm -hmm. and and more around how you can practice this. That that was um, paramount interest to me uh, in this in this particular book. Um, and uh, let me read. Uh, I love these quotes and I love reading them. But uh, there's one by uh, Gallic Rinpoche who just passed. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. He's so great. You know what a great great lama he is. Uh, uh, when you're practicing generosity, you should feel a little pinch when you give something away. That pinch is your stinginess protesting. If you give away your old, worn-out coat that you wouldn't be caught dead wearing, that is not generosity. 
There is no pinch. You are doing nothing to overcome your stinginess. You're just cleaning out your, your closet and calling it something else. Giving away your coat might keep someone warm, but it does not address the problem to free ourselves from self-cherishing and self-grasping. That, if you had given me that alone, I would have paid for this book, okay, Barbara? <laughs> that one thing is so powerful, yeah. Um, you picked my favorite. I did? Absolutely. Of all, of all <laughs> the quotes, that's my favorite one. It, and as I, as I went around speaking about the book for the six months after it came out, when I would, I would always read that quote in my talk, and there was always a little gasp in the audience, this sort of the, oh, I get it. Wow. I guess I haven't been doing that. Really a, a recognition, uh, uh, both with the humor of it, but also with the reality. It's a marvelous quote, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But really addressing uh, our self-cherishing, uh, self-preservation, self-grasping, uh, any kind of practice that addresses that, and which is... I mean, generosity immediately launches people into a very one-dimensional idea of what that is. Yeah. This takes it to, wow, a whole a, a set of different levels of consciousness. To It's, it's, it's quite, quite uh, fantastic, actually. Um, and I think really important, you know. I mean, a lot of what we do here is certainly try and suggest to people what it is how do you practice on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, mm -hmm. not just the byword mindfulness or not just a formal meditation practice, but this gives a, you really address generosity, what it really is, mm -hmm. and gives a way to, to deal with that part of ourselves that is so ungenerous and so caught in polarization. So it's terrific, really terrific. Um, okay. So there, there's a, what, there's a couple of stories in here which I'd love for you to just kind of, uh, I'm sure you, uh, that are just amazing in terms of how people turn on a dime with just a thought. I mean, you know, some of this has to be that they they must have developed this karma over ages and ages. But oh. tell the story of the Salwin family. This oh my goodness, what a great family. Uh, well, a, a very well-off couple in Atlanta, whom I had the chance to meet and spend some time with. Uh, he he'd made a lot of money in business. He was probably in his mid-40s. They had two young children. Uh, they, it really was an instant. They pulled up to a traffic light one day uh, and noticed... Uh, a very, very expensive car next to them. And uh, the kids immediately said, actually the daughter, Hannah, said, you know, do you know how many people that car could support? Uh, just the money from that snazzy car, the good it could do in the world. And then they actually went home and had great conversations about that and what they could do with their lives. And Working with their young children, they decided to actually sell their house and get a house for half as much money and then work together to give the other half away. Uh, now, obviously, there were seeds for that act in their early lives, uh, but they all were taken by surprise. And 
the thing that so interests me in talking about generosity is then what happens afterwards. Mm. You know, you, you, you can't go back to living in the former orientation. It simply changes you once you've had the lightning bolt. Uh, and so their lives were categorically changed. They're now very, very immersed in the world of philanthropy and doing all kinds of, of work. And uh, it's a wonderful story. They're a fantastic family. But their lives were changed by one one flash of a second. Yeah, sitting yeah. in the car, and the and the little girl says, <laughs> "Wow, I bet we could feed." You know, that's so fantastic. I and, loved you pick, picked up that story. Uh, Thank you. The um, I have one good friend who I do podcasts with that uh, most of our listeners know, Duncan Trussell. Uh, he's uh, quite a wonderful podcaster, raconteur, and stand-up comedian, and. Um, so we he told me a story once where he decided that he was going to do his own personal food drive, gather a bunch of food together in a knapsack and go down to where he was in L.A. at the time, East L.A. or something, where homeless people were, and he was going to go give away this food. And when he got there and he started to do it, he was so overwhelmed by his uh, the hypocrisy of I am doing anything for anybody yep. uh, that he went through. I mean, I don't know how many conniptions he went through. He described yeah. it on this podcast. I was on the floor. It was so damn funny. Uh, but, oh. but he actually, aside from the humor and, and his way of describing it, he actually took an action, which is what, you know, you see these people took the big, big action, right? I mean, amazing. He took a little tiny, tiny action, which has more to do with what Gallic Rinpoche was talking about, mm -hmm. where he actually did it knowing he was going to, he was in, in no way free of self, mm -hmm. uh, self-reflection yeah. uh, identification. But he was going to go through it and uh, do his best and at the same time have enough awareness to see where he was caught. And that, I think, is, uh, is a, again, that's why I love Gellick's thing. It's just really fantastic. Um, let's see. There's so many great quotes that I just uh, I picked up. Um, but before I, I get into them, because I'm seeing something else that's uh, another story of Cami Walker. I'd like you to tell mm -hmm. that story. Uh, there's a quote in there which you probably maybe don't know by heart. At some point, I'll, I'll read it. But can you tell their story? Cammy Walker's story was uh, of a woman who uh, was very ill uh, and um, had tried just about all traditional and non-traditional uh, paths to healing and finally went to uh, an African healer who gave her the uh, prescription of uh, giving away something every day for, I think it was 21 or 28 days. To heal herself. Uh, that would To heal, heal herself. To heal herself. Uh, something as insignificant as a paperclip or a Kleenex or money that she found or whatever, but the, uh, the simple act of giving and of reminding herself to give and to being in a position of giving, uh, a sort of a prescription of outer directedness, actually, mm -hmm. Uh, and of course I wouldn't be telling the story if it hadn't worked dramatically. Yeah. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so it did. And, and then she went on to, uh, for whatever reason it, it worked with many other things perhaps, but it, 
changed her orientation and the way she wanted to live the rest of her life just in those in those few weeks mm. of of turning herself out mm. yeah it doesn't take much you know uh, i must say as a as a personal story i i took the gallic rinpoche to uh heart when with my young grandsons uh i wanted them around thanksgiving when they were very young to understand about giving and not just feel self-satisfied in giving something away. So I, I sent them each $20. They were very young. That was a fortune. Um, knowing that they could then feel the pinch. And I said, here is a $20 bill, but now you have to think very carefully about what organization you want to give this to and then write me a letter about what you did. But they both were able to do the, oh, $20. I want, oh, I want that. How old were they? <laughs> they were then six and eight. Oh, so so that's young too, and uh, and so now it's it's like, what are we doing this Thanksgiving? <laughs> and a very different orientation about giving. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. You, so you can do it in little ways. I'm going to steal that and do that. I'm about <laughs> next time I meet up with uh, my little guys as well. <laughs> Got to uh, start early. <laughs> yeah, really, that's a great idea. Um, so in this story of Cami Walker. Um, the shaman, uh, you quote him in here, uh, which is a really powerful, and I want to talk about it. Healing doesn't happen in a vacuum, but through our interactions with other people. By giving, you are focusing on what you have to offer others, inviting more abundance into your life. Giving of any kind is taking a positive action that begins the process of change. It'll shift your energy for life, which obviously happened with Cami. Um, but uh, this whole, the interconnectedness of everything uh, and how healing doesn't happen in a vacuum. And people talk about the generosity of thinking of other, just thinking of other people and wishing them well. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Buddhists have that great um, prayer uh, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, and so on. Um, but talk about what this means to you in terms of, uh, in your own life, in your own example, uh, the interconnectivity between people and the way in which you initiate um, different, in this case, generosity, but anything that has, everything has, uh, you know, it ricochets out. I think one of the things that I love about that story, which you just uh, uh, underlined, is the sense of inner abundance. So quite often when we're in need or desperate, we, we have such a sense of poverty. Um, it's not difficult, actually, with practice to turn that into a sense of inner abundance and, and what we can do uh, and shower it out. Uh, so, I mean, in, in my own work with philanthropists, it's really just tapping into uh, someone's idea of how they want to make the world a better place, how they can uh, really take an idea and by seeding it with their own generosity, make it happen. Uh, I often say to people that I'm working with, you're really just manifesting the big idea. What is it you want to do in the world? And then let's let's work on a plan and how we can make it happen. It's going to take money. Uh, 
And money then doesn't become the dirty word of money and materialism, but instead the vehicle of transformation. Mm. So uh, it's a pleasure, a real, real pleasure to work with people who can make things happen and who take joy in it uh, through that kind of generosity. Mm. Do they, when people, you know, I've known many people also, wealthy people and so on, and work with them in different ways. And some of them do not see how we are, the way that we are connected, right. um, the way that w we make one motion and how it ripples and how right. it affects. And whatever we put into it, as much as our, our the tiny little self hopefully is not as involved as it might, you know, as it usually is. Do you get around to that with people in terms of, again, it goes back to Gallic Rinpoche, you know, what yeah. it's, it's awareness of what we're doing. And in the process, we are becoming better humans on every level. Yes. Hopefully. Well, you know, the accumulation of wealth is not uh, exactly the the building ground for altruism i mean everything about it or awareness sort of makes you exactly makes you very inner directed and, and sort of counting the piles of money and how much and then we need more and then we need more and the, and and so the the whole mindset is one of of just accumulating more and more it's the rare individual who can sit back and reflect and say what's this all for Usually it happens at a certain age. It doesn't usually happen in the 30s. That's a yeah, sweeping right. statement, but certainly yeah. there's, then there's a moment when it all has to have meaning. Yes. That's where Don Juan said, keep death over your left shoulder at all you times. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> or for the Buddhists walking through the charnel grounds. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's hard to get that at 30-odd years old, yeah. And, uh, Some yeah. do. Some do. I mean, we had everything you could possibly ask for, Barbara. Like I was 24 when I met Neem Karoli Baba with Ram Dass. Oh, my. Okay. And nothing more could ever have happened than what happened. And yet there still was that flippancy. <laughs> it took many, many years for that to be eroded away of, uh -huh. of self-cherishing. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Um, it never, never quite goes away, does no, it? it? Yeah. <laughs> when you transition, it might. Most of it might go away at that point. Yeah. Um, so, oh, th another quote: Lao Tzu, and you know the Tao. Everybody, that's what we need more of: balance. Kindness in words creates confidence. Kindness in thinking creates profoundness. Kindness in giving creates love. Another fantastic quote. You know, I um, I think you know who Mingyur Rinpoche is, Tibetan mm -hmm. Lama, and maybe you know that a couple of years ago, maybe a little bit more, he decided, you know, he's a uh, part of a, uh, he inherited, you know, beautiful monasteries and so on, and uh, He's in a lineage with his family that goes way back. I mean, just incredible uh, lineage. And he was well taken care of and served and everything. So he wanted to leave that and just go on a tour, just like a mendicant, like mm -hmm. an Indian yogi. So he did so. And in the process, he almost died. 
because uh, he was <laughs> from eating some bad food at a railway station in Benares, I think. Uh, and he went through some very severe, severe stuff because he didn't, you know, he had a little bit of money when he started and that was it. So he was ended up begging for food and being treated just, you know, in all kinds of different ways that were not uh, fun. And then he finally ended up, because he wanted to meditate for in a cave for a long period, and he went and he ended up m meditating, and, you know, he, he has real realization. I mean, I've not met him in person, but just by seeing... Uh, I saw yes. him tell his story on a video on YouTube, by the way. Oh, yeah, anybody who wants to, go to go to YouTube, Mingyur, M-I-N-G-Y-U-R, Rinpoche, and you'll see him. There'll, there'll be a video telling about his uh, his year and a half or two years uh, as a wandering yogi. It's fantastic. Anyhow, in this, and why I brought it up, is that he, in terms of recommending something, like, you know, at the end, so you, what I would recommend you do, you figure, meditate for, you know, 40 hours a day or <laughs> do chanting or prostrations or whatever. You know what he said? When you wake up in the morning, the first thing that should come to your mind is being grateful that you have been given a body in this lifetime within which you can realize the true self. And, yeah. and he said, just be grateful for any, even this, just start with the smallest things. I can get up now. I can actually get up and walk. I can actually make myself a cup of tea. In yeah. just the smallest things. That's what he talked about. It was so great, you know. It's a beautiful practice. A beautiful practice. Mm. And it. And I think I have to add here that generosity can't happen without gratitude. Mm -hmm. Gratitude has to be there. Yeah, Otherwise, you're simply, you cannot be generous. Which is really what he was talking about. Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was the beginning of everything, including generosity, courage, anything. Uh, and he so. must have seen all kinds of generosity. Yeah. And yeah. lack. <laughs> and lack. Yeah, big time. So the other book I want to get it in is kind of like getting two books in and one twofer in one podcast. Um, uh, courage is, uh, I must tell this story, uh, which my listeners uh, of Mind Rolling have heard uh, many times before. But it's probably one of the most powerful teachings that we got from Ninkaroli Baba, from Maharaji. Um, and it happened actually to Krishnadas, who was with him actually in Mumbai at one time, which was odd. Uh, and he, Maharaji would come to the hotel room that was sort of people would come and have darshan and so on, which was also odd. Um, and there was a cl close devotee with him that spoke English, obviously, to do the translation. So in one moment, Maharaji suddenly, there was complete silence. They were just sitting there or something. Nothing was going on. And Maharaji said to Krishna Das, courage is a very big thing. And Krishnadas, was, he, he, there's a great video that we have on, on the network, uh, ramdas.org, uh, about his reaction, like, holy God, what's going to happen to me? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, then, and then the Indian man said, but Maharaji, it's, it's all Guru's grace. 
right? So it wouldn't matter. Courage, no courage. <laughs> gratitude, no <laughs> gratitude. You know, all, it's, it's, and Maharaji turned to Krishnadas again and point, he used to do this. Courage is a very big thing. That, uh, Krishnadas said then, uh, has sustained him for his entire life that whenever he was in between a rock and a hard place mm-hmm. or in any kind of really uh, compromised situation, life situation, or just even deep depression or whatever it might have been, that would flood back into him, into his mind and would make the complete difference. And Yes. Uh, um, when we, uh, as you know, we do these retreats in Maui with Ramdas and Krishnas and Sharon and Jack and all of our friends, <laughs> our mutual friends. And courage has been um, in d- in different situations. We have definitely brought that up and, and talked about it. But why don't you talk about it and define it a little bit for for everybody? Well, I have to say that after uh, the first book came out and, and did well, and then the publisher asked me what else I wanted to write on, I didn't hesitate. I realized that really all my life I'd been fascinated by and drawn to people who speak truth to power and stand up for uh, what they believe and um, live boldly. And uh so I started again on an exploration of a subject in which I'm not an expert, but which I am completely and fascinated by and I think uh, can contribute to people's lives. Well, I think courage itself is, a, is an act of, I think it's an act of the heart, first of all. Mm. Uh, cur- courageous people cannot explain their acts of courage. And I, they always say, oh, it was just put in my path. Anybody would do it. I didn't do anything special. There's always that, always that humility, but always that sort of perplexed quality. And I think it's because it's not linear. It's not logical. It's like a pouring forth uh, from deep inside. So, uh, and I think it's uh, an act of complete authenticity uh, you have to really know who you are and know what, what you'll step forward for. Uh, and a commitment to your own life and values, however you define that. I think courage always has a, an altruism and an outer directedness. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't, otherwise it doesn't matter. Really, at the core of it is, is love. If, you, if there's no love, then there's no courage because there's nothing to fight for. Uh, we're really talking about what matters most deeply to ourselves. And always humility, uh, always a sense of great determination. And some people that I've spoken to, whom I would consider very courageous, also talk about a sense of uh, vulnerability. Mm. So all of those things are, are, are were interesting to me because we live in a world in which courage is synonymous with bravado and making a lot of noise. And uh, I don't need to go into the examples that we see in the news every day of just people who, just with a lot of bluster, uh, <laughs> the total opposite of courage. There is zero courage in that. And, you know, when I wrote the book, uh, I had no idea that we'd be living in this catastrophe right, that we're going through right now. Uh, and so I think there's a, a yearning 
for stories about real courage. And we have to stand up every day now, uh, really, in the face of what we're all living through in this country. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very long answer to what is courage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a great quote um, by Hafiz. Fear yeah. is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. <laughs> Isn't that a beauty? <laughs> yeah, that's so great. And, you know, when you talk about courage, certainly fear is part of the conversation because fear, I mean, people go, well, I'm not living in fear. Well, are you living in polarity and us and themness big time these days? Probably. Uh, there's so many occlusions of the heart going on for men, for all of us. All of us, except maybe His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you know. Um, I mean, we do know a few few advanced beings that are not living in that state. And to me, as you said, courage is about the heart. And ch and to me, it's changing the heart and being able to... Uh, Maharaji made that point of to be able to stand up, to me, what he was saying, to be able to stand up and inside yourself and uh, and 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 be able to look in the face of self again self cherishing we you know mm -hmm. we talked mm -hmm. about self interest and and be able to uh, stand up to your little self takes tremendous courage tremendous yes, courage and I think that you know that certainly was a is a big part of it um, there there's one story. Maybe you could talk about Joseph Luzzi. That that was yeah. uh, fascinating to me. Tell his story. It, that's I'm so glad you brought that up. Nobody really brings up that story, uh, and yet it it completely fascinated me. Joe Luzzi is a professor of Italian literature at Bard College, and um, uh, talk about things happening in the flash of a moment. Uh, one moment, maybe six or seven years ago, his uh, wife, who was nine months pregnant, uh, was in a fatal car crash. So in the blink of an eye, he became both a widower and the father of a newborn baby. Uh, and he had, of course, no experience in either one of these life-changing so, activities. So the baby survived this horrible Their accident. baby survived, wow. yeah. So he was... Yeah. Uh, suddenly a dad and a widower and and the and he writes so eloquently in his book about the extent of his grief and how paralyzing it was and yet having a young child and and uh realizing the responsibility of that but basically barely able to function uh but what he knew best was uh all the great works of italian literature and and what he was used to teaching was Dante and the Inferno. And so he went for inspiration there to those words that he knew so well uh, in a dark forest. Uh, and of course, I don't have the book in front of me, so I can't do the whole quote. But what I was really talking about was that courage comes in the most expected, unexpected places. It can surprise us. And there, there was no one else that I wrote about in the book who went to creativity, to literature or music or art, uh, to find their source of courage. Joe did, and it was there for him. 
and of course it wasn't instantaneous. It took probably a year and a half, but it was, it was immersing himself back in Dante over and over and over again, uh, that he was able to, uh, really see himself, I think, and, and the world around him in a new way mm. and well, come through. Yeah. He said, uh, I'll just quote, mm-hmm. uh, he felt the power of love, Joe did, giving him the courage he needed, which is probably the key to this whole book. It yes. was love that landed me in the dark wood to begin with, and only love could lead me out. And um, that's a powerful teaching around grief in general. Do you talk to people about that in particular and courage related to, because most people, most of us have the toughest problem with grief. With grief. Yeah. And uh, I'd love for you to talk about it. That just happened to me. A friend uh, died uh, two nights ago, someone close to in the satsang. Oh, Yeah, And just dealing with it uh, um, as much as I have, within me Mm -hmm. it's still there's a way in which you know you do have to summon up something that's not that's part of the mystery and that you can't use your mind for can you talk a little bit about grief and courage and love well uh, i think probably in those moments you have to dispense with any thoughts of courage and simply go into immersing yourself in the experience uh right uh, when you when you come out at the other end, it can feel as if you've gone through a courageous journey just by by hanging in there uh, and uh, being true to it and not ducking. You know, I think one of the misconceptions we have of courage is that it involves fearlessness. In fact, anybody who is truly courageous is very intimate with fear, has experienced great fear, all usually great grief as well. Mm-hmm. Take it all on the whole catastrophe. Um, but yeah, generally when I speak about the book, I, I'm much more of a listener to grief stories than I am in imparting any words of wisdom on grief and, and courage. It just, it's the kind of courage that's putting one foot in front of the other Mm. every day, much like, much like the courage to get through an illness. Right. Well, bearing be, you know, that word being able to stick in and bear it. I mean, that there, there's courage involved there, and um, you know that's something that we shy away from because it's so uncomfortable, you know, yeah. and how we shy away from so many things that are uncomfortable in our lives, and and of course there isn't any more discomfort than the feeling of grief, and uh, you know, and I saw myself, you know, shying away from that, and yeah. and th- your books have been out you know, on my table because I knew we were going to do this podcast. So I've been looking through them and so on. And, and the courage w- was a, a major factor to remember that it's, you keep your heart open is, is yes. the biggest courage. And, and, and uh, once you do that, then all things are possible. And keeping your heart open means to me also, you do not have to, not you do not have to, you cannot rely on understanding with your mind how anything works. You have to, uh, Roshi Joan Halifax uh, does a wonderful job around talking about respecting the mystery. Yes. You know, and that's right. something you know, we all need to do. There's another, I love uh, Rilke, 
and you have a great quote uh, which um, really spells out what we're talking about. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror just keep going. No feeling is final. How Isn't that great. wonderful? Yeah. I know impermanence, it is. Impermanence. Yeah. We just, um, I don't know why this is tripping me into thinking, but we just put out on Ram Dass a wonderful, yeah, everybody, you can go, this is something great for you. It features Lama Surya Das, another great friend of ours in Ram Dass. Oh. And it's, uh, the title is, and it fits with exactly what this, uh, this book is centered around, um, Impermanence and the Power of Love. Could easily have been Impermanence and the Power of Courage. Because yeah. they really are so synonymous. Uh, I think so, too. Yeah. Go to ramdas.org, everybody. It's all free for you to uh, to listen. And there's another stream. And on, I, I just, I think there's one thing. I hate to, I'm sitting here reading all your beautiful quotes. I could be here all night doing that. But there's Excellent. one. There's one poem, and we haven't really read a poem yet. Um, it's called The Invitation. Yeah. Do you have the book in front of you? I do. I'm okay, just so you up. should read it. I shouldn't do it. You should read it. It's page 140. And you read it because it's fantastic. I never heard a... it before. Oh, I'm so happy you hadn't. No. Wow. It's by Araya Mountain Dreamer. and um, Who is that? Well, she's uh, obviously a Native American. Yeah. Um, but and I had from... never heard of her work, but I've, this poem has come up in, in a number of, uh, seminars that I, or talks that I've listened to. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of a number of people have been quoting it lately. Um, but I love it and I couldn't not include it. Yeah. So would you like me to read it? Please. Please. I should say, first of all, that um, you did note that I had a lot of different careers, but reading poetry aloud has not been one of them. <laughs> However, I love this poem and I'm happy to read it. It doesn't interest me if the story you're telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. If you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. Mm -hmm. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it's not pretty every day, and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you'll stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or with whom you've studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. Oh, God, that's it. That's it's a killer, killer, isn't it? Killer. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Barbara. Beautiful poem. Oh, I never get boy. tired of reading this. 
so uh, everybody out there, go. These two books are so inspirational. I can't tell you, and and you can. You don't even have to read them cover to cover. They're the kind of books you just go in anywhere. Uh, you you could have them by your little altar where you sit every day, wherever you wherever you choose to be alone with yourself, and just pick something out. And it's it's they're wonderful books, Barbara. Thank you, thank you, thank. Thank you, you so much. And you, you all can go to. Uh, I have to do a commercial now, Barbara. You can go to Amazon and pick up these books. And in doing so, using our link on BeHereNowNetwork.com, we get a few shekels for each book that gets mm-hmm. sold. Barbara still gets her royalty. Uh, the, um, the publisher, which is Wisdom, great publisher, by the way, of many, many great books, they get what they need. Amazon gets what they need. And we get some support. So go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. Go to the Amazon link and just copy and paste that into your browser, everybody. And when we thank you, Barbara, for joining us today. And uh, we, we have what to a do joy. this again. Uh, and to find you, uh, you, where do we find you? BarbaraBonner.com? BarbaraBonner.org. Dot org, okay. BarbaraBonner.org. Each yeah. of the books has a, a website, too. InspiringCourage.org okay, and InspiringGenerosity.net. And that'll all be... You can always find me. Okay, wonderful. That'll all be on our page, on, on the Mind Rolling page on the Be Here Now Network, so you'll be able to link up and, and do it all. And again, thank you. And everybody... Mind Rolling will be back next week.